Welcome back to the HC Hive, a podcast about all things HCI, UX, and grad school. We're now in Harshali, two master's students in the Human Computer Interaction Program at Georgia Tech. special after hours episode we will be talking about all the weird strong and hot opinions we have about all things related to hci and also lots of other random things you heard it here first this after hours bonus episode is all about hot takes hershali yeah what's your hot take Ooh, i was thinking about hot takes in the shower today for some reason yeah i was having some ideas i, I had four 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 hot all takes. right let's hear them yeah, I, let me see if I can remember them all. I think I have a big hot take about people saying affinity mapping is a research activity. Like, it's a research activity, but it's not a research method. Oh, no. Right, so it's like, if you can put stickies on a wallet, you're not a researcher. No. Like, it's more than that. Besides, like, people do affinity mapping outside of UX and outside of HCI. Exactly. You can use it to group ideas. That's you know? literally it. Yeah. Right, so yeah. like... Affinity mapping is not a research skill. I don't think HCI is about empathizing with our users. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Like let's I think, unpack that. Let's unpack that. <laughs> I think Kathy Batster appropriately named the book Understanding Your Users, mm-hmm. which I think is very different from empathizing. Because at the end of the day, like we are, we're the source of ideas. We have expertise in user experience and thinking kind of systemically about how to create new technologies or think critically about existing ones, empathizing with our users actually provides a very limited perspective on the world. And I think we as researchers and designers need to be able to step back from our users' perspective and think at a much higher level. I would agree with that too. This phrase, understanding your users, but then using that understanding you found and then distilling it into certain design implications and Mm -hmm. then creating something out of that. The whole empathizing, I think that phrase itself just lends to us feel like we've gotten a level past understanding even where it's like, oh, we know our users so well that this is what they have to have or this is what they need. We think this certain type of technology or this certain medium is what would solve the problem, which it could. Mm Mm-hmm. They, they maybe yeah. know what could solve their problems. Yeah. And it's like, from our perspective, it would. But then, like, you test it, and then suddenly it's like, this is clunky. This doesn't make sense. Like, mm-hmm. this is too complicated. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that hot take. I'm trying to remember the other ones. Yeah. But in the meantime, how about you? What's a hot take? Mine's a little bit more specific. Yeah. A little nitpicky. Not quite about HCI in general, but I know that Comic Sans... As a font, gets a lot of flack. Yeah. A lot of people are like, never use Comic Sans for presentations, never use it in a document. I would argue that Arial is a much worse font. Ooh, I, I need to hear more about this. I, there's something about Arial. It's, I don't know if it's because it's been like the default for some types of documents. I know Calibri is like the go-to default mm-hmm. for Microsoft Word. Yeah. But Google, I believe, uses Arial. A lot of websites default is Arial font. Yes. And to me, it just, it seems almost outdated. It's not as inviting. Whereas I've even read articles where Comic Sans was used as a way to stir creativity when you're writing. Interesting. Some people have said that they have written papers or just like different reports starting in Comic Sans. Mm -hmm. Just because to them, it's just like not a professional font that they'll just write whatever. And then later they'll convert it. Oh, wow. Like during proofreading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but because the font itself like doesn't lend to like, oh, I'm going to submit paper to like this conference or uh-huh. this journal, academic journal or medical journal or something. So it's kind of like, let me just get all these wild ideas out there. Wow. And then switch That's it later. Crazy. I mean, do you have a favorite font? I don't know if it's like the favorite, but I do really enjoy Baskerville's. 
Mm, Baskerville's good. I'm a big yeah. like Monster Rock fan. Ooh, nice. Yeah. Big, big round letters. Mm-hmm. Mm. All about those round letters. Do you have any other hot takes? I mean, the one that comes to mind right now is like, I don't think per- portfolios are all that. That's what I was thinking. No way. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's talk about this. <laughs> Why do we have to focus on this like website so much? Well, okay. So I think there's a couple of things that go with portfolios. One, I think there's a strange conflation between U.S. design and U.S. research and U.S. engineering. Um, when it comes to portfolios, and I think in each of those disciplines, portfolios serve a very different purpose. A portfolio for a UX designer is very similar to a portfolio for any other designer or artist or creative, right? They need to be able to show their projects and whatnot. For research, I think it's a little weird just because research is a primarily academic like arena, right? And academia has its own kind of metrics and its own systems for gauging performance evaluation, right? Um, They have publications, they have Google Scholar, they have conferences and whatnot, they have like writing and papers and whatnot. So I think there is a system in place, but I think when you do UX research, you are kind of outside of that field and therefore you don't have publications to show for your work or you don't have uh, like papers or a Google Scholar um, like record to show. And so then that's when you rely on a portfolio to provide kind of that evidence. But then portfolios always tend to be kind of visual first mm-hmm, and definitely. research isn't necessarily a visual activity, right? It, it's, you're going to write a report. You produce reports, you produce slide decks, you produce just like written documentation. A lot of your artifacts are written form. So I think the portfolio even name and like nomenclature doesn't really work for that. So there's that consideration. I also think there's a lot of sort of ethical considerations that go around portfolios just because, you know, I think it is a privilege to have the time to build and maintain a portfolio. Like that is not trivial, right? And so to make a judgment about somebody's competence based off of their portfolio is I think a little unfair because, you know, maybe they're too busy doing actual work Mm -hmm. to have an updated or an, an amazing portfolio, right? Yeah. Like, a portfolio is like a job in in and of itself. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of weight given to it, and I understand where that comes from, because I think resumes are inadequate, especially in our field. But at the same time, the the weight given to portfolios is sometimes also inflated. I remember talking to a researcher, a U.S. researcher this summer, and he was telling me how, like, when he thinks about his portfolio, and it's like, if you don't have the experience doing specific UX research and you're trying to find a job, like, where are you going to get that research? Because sometimes from academic research, the things don't translate as well to mm-hmm. industry, especially if you're focusing, like, within a PhD, like, a very specific topic yes. um, surrounded by a specific problem space or something. But then he said, he just felt like his colleagues within UX design or even UX engineering, you're, you kind of have almost like this certain freedom where you see this website, you're like, oh, maybe I could redesign this and I can make this a case study and add it to my portfolio or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas with he felt like with UX research, he could do the same thing. Yeah. But then he's like, where do I go about recruiting? And it, is it okay if I'm recruiting to do it on behalf of this company, but I don't work at this company. I'm just kind of doing it for fun. So there's like a weird, of course, like the company's probably happy that you're really interested in doing (laughs) research about their company or on behalf of their company. But at the same time, even if you're working there, there's like NDAs Mm -hmm. you do with like participant information or just 
findings and insights from your reports. I think on top of that, like what you mentioned about like the level of like unfairness that comes with these portfolios, like with resumes, a lot of times hiring people probably spend like what, 15, 30 seconds on a resume. That's like Mm -hmm. one page usually with a portfolio. You've got multiple web pages or whatever platform you're using, but are they spending the same amount of time on that? And it's like, Mm -hmm. especially for UX research, if your site's not as visually appealing with like something that catches their eye within like that small time frame, like that's not very fair yeah as well there's certain ways you like different ways that people like structure these portfolios and how Mm -hmm. they go about their work explain their process but at the same time I think like my hot take about it it's like at some point I feel like a lot of these start looking the same oh yes because um well that's another thing like as you mentioned, we don't have the time to work on them all the time. Mm -hmm. So you kind of built this template for yourself or there's a sense of familiarity like, oh, we use this grid format or we use certain colors or there's certain design trends that we want to incorporate to show that we know what's happening in this industry and like what users are kind of looking for in terms of like, oh, these trends are happening in these apps. Maybe I should incorporate in this portfolio. How do you show your personality, but also want to show that like, you know what's happening out there. I also think like maybe it's just being in school and being surrounded by people who are just starting their careers, including myself. I think one challenge of that is that there's a lot of emotional weight given to portfolios. If the portfolio isn't right, somehow I'm not right. There's this like kind of merging of like self-worth and like the quality of a portfolio and whatnot. And I think that's really dangerous. I firmly believe, and I've just had people in my life that have like very actively told me this, so I've been very fortunate for that. But I really firmly believe that like if you take away your resume and your portfolio, there still needs to be someone left there. You know, that's like interesting and worth knowing. And I think when we pay attention to resumes and portfolios and LinkedIn and veneer that you have to put on mm-hmm. for like a job hunt, I feel like it's very easy to kind of lose that sense of self. And then it, it becomes a very toxic cycle just like in your head. It could be the environment that we're in, like being students, all studying the same thing, wanting to work in the same field. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous when you start comparing your portfolio to someone else's. Yeah. Because going back to what you were saying, like your sense of worth or how you kind of see yourself because you've spent so many hours working on this, then you start thinking like, oh, this person has this in their portfolio. I don't have that. And suddenly if they have something, it's like, what do they have that I don't have? Yeah. And it's just this constant spiral that gets, gets pretty dangerous is probably the best word for it. But yeah, I totally agree. I think, I think at the end of the day, like you said, there's got to be a person there. There's got to be your personality has got to show through. Mm-hmm. Because people want to work with people. Yeah. I think like related to that, like something that my brother always says is that you don't leave a job, you leave a manager or you leave a team. Your experience at any organization is going to be driven by the people that you're surrounded with, mm-hmm. not the name of the organization or the status or yeah. like the perception, you know, like you should work at a great company, but just work with a terrible team and then you're not going to have a good time. It's important to ask those questions during interviews as well, you know, like understand the culture, understand the team get a sense of like what these people that you would work with on a day-to-day basis prioritize and what they're like going off of that something that i learned like in undergrad that um at least in the college of business that they emphasized a lot was like when you're doing those interviews you're also interviewing the team Mm -hmm. and interviewing the company which is so true because i think we kind of fall into this habit of wanting to make sure we say the right thing making sure that we look good in front of them or we can adapt to whatever the team is or whatever mission and values a company has Mm -hmm. but I think at the same time like if we find out that things don't align it's okay to walk away from that you don't have to feel like you have to compromise so much oh yeah like they're looking for a good fit but you're also looking for a good fit what do you think is like an important quality to have 
in HCI or in U.S.? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Do you have a trait that comes to mind? I think a sense of humor. A sense of humor, yeah. yeah. And there's like two reasons for that. I'm going to unpack that. Yeah. Even though you didn't ask. No, no, you're good. <laughs> I'll unpack that. Yeah, definitely. Um, first, I think a sense of humor is really important because the human-centered design process or like the U.S. mentality of like building technology for people or whatnot, right? That mentality is very easy to fall into this trap of fixating on issues on challenges, on problems, gaps, user needs, you know, even user wants, I think. Mm -hmm. It's easy to fixate on like the negativity, the lack of something. But I think there is a difference between alleviating negativity and building positivity, Mm -hmm. right? Like there's, when you only address problems or user needs, you become very reactive as a person, right? You're reacting to fires and you're just going around putting them out. But I think to be truly innovative and truly creative, you have to actually step away from that mentality and sort of build up right you have to be you have to have a positive and very creative outlook and that's and like when I think for that place for me is when you design for joy for delight for pleasure for Mm -hmm. happiness yeah you know being like positive in what you produce and I think like having a sense of humor and bringing positivity to your process produces a positive product in the end so I think it's really important for us to embody uh, to some extent Mm -hmm. like having a positivity and having the lightheartedness and then like the other reason why I think humor is important is because we're we've reached a point in the world where we have a lot of existing systems that can solve problems right like there are problems that haven't been solved out in the world but very often like at the level that we do UX we often solve problems we don't solve new problems we just solve problems better right there's already a current solution it just maybe not the best as somebody in user experience you need to be able to think critically about existing systems and like what's currently there and i think humor as like a form of rebellion and resistance is a great way of thinking critically about like what's out there and how to make it funny how to not take it too seriously and just like build something else out of it with the existing systems i think especially now like what you mentioned there's so many different types of them out there whether they're digital or analog even Mm -hmm. i think it's gotten to the point where yeah like we're not necessarily making entirely new things but innovating upon old systems improving them or even just using the same exact system but in different contexts Oh, yeah. You know? But yeah, as you're kind of going through that, yeah, I think a sense of humor is definitely something that you kind of need in UX. But I think kind of coupling that with like just always having this sense of curiosity. Mm. So I feel like within UX research or just within research in general, like we're always like asking why. Yeah. Asking how, like just really curious about how it works. Um, But that can also be applied to design and engineering and other fields with writing even within UX. For design, like I think design itself, just like at least my perception of the field just of design, not specifically UX design, but there's this level of like you're kind of going for perfection. Things have to work work but they also should look nice or there should be a certain level of style or something like that and of course like with engineering things don't have to be perfect but things have to run Mm -hmm. so your code has to have a certain level of performance but then with the curiosity part like I think it just shows that you don't have to be perfect but Mm -hmm. it kind of pushes you to tinker and like just test things yeah and it's not that you're aiming for this one outcome I think part of what makes UX fun is that you're just kind of like playing around almost. Yeah. Like taking what your users are saying, but just testing it out, testing out different things and seeing what works, not necessarily to solve problems, but maybe things that might make your users happy and might make their experience more 
delightful or pleasant. Mm -hmm. But with that level of curiosity, it's like you don't have to make the right thing. You got to be willing to try it out to just see what would happen. I think in curiosity, right? Like you don't, sometimes you don't even know what you're trying to achieve. No. Right. And I think that's so, so often the case for what we do in U.S. Yeah. There's so much uncertainty. So much uncertainty, so much ambiguity. Yeah. You don't even have metrics for success sometimes. No. Like you don't even know if you got it right. Sometimes people's full projects are to create metrics. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to Tiffany. Tiffany, we love you. How did you decide that you wanted to be a UX researcher? Because I know you're always like, I'm not really sure what I want to do. Still exploring, still figuring things out. And you have a very strong inner designer, I feel. There are people out there. I know I've like joked about this, but I actually like have really felt this way. At least the way I thought it. Like a lot of people would say like design is my passion. Design is... (laughs) Which I know a lot of it, like it is true for a lot of people, yeah, which yeah. is amazing. But people really feel strongly about design. I just feel like for me, like design is really more of a hobby. Like going okay. back to what I was saying about curiosity stuff. Like I, I love tinkering. I love mm-hmm. making things. Yeah. But I don't know. I just feel like as not necessarily like as a, like partly as a career path. Um, I feel like with UX research, so like you know how my background was like marketing. Mm-hmm. doing market research yeah. and like consumer behavior. But I really enjoyed just being able to like listen to people, engage with them and then figuring out like what their wants and needs are. But with marketing, that was much more high level, much more macro level mm-hmm. and figuring out like, okay, then how do we market this product to them? How do we cater to their shopping behavior, buying behavior? And then I think it was, it was just through like our projects at Georgia Tech where um, when we were going through the research phases at the time, I was just kind of like, oh, I kind of did this before in marketing, but it's more more micro level, like different interactions people have with technology, different touch points and things like that. But then once we got to the design phases, I just really miss talking to people, Hmm. I guess. And just really like not figuring out what they want or figuring out their needs, but just more of, I I don't know. I just found a lot of joy in like getting that data and then Mm -hmm. just like sitting and like analyzing that data. Yeah. I don't know. I think also I just like data (laughs) and it was really interesting because like I felt like with marketing research a lot of times like when we would do surveys there was like a level of like a mixed method type of thing where you would have both qualitative and quantitative but then when we were doing it for our projects it was much more emphasized with like qualitative research and Mm -hmm. I had hadn't had a lot of experience with interviews focus groups moderated usability testing and I really enjoyed like qualitative side because it's easy to like put your data set in excel and like run these stats and Mm -hmm. see correlations between different like variables and controls that you put within your study but then with qualitative I don't know it's just nice because you're really just sitting there and you're looking through like different quotes that people have said and people say some crazy things (laughs) yeah yeah, it's do. just fun I don't know and it's like it's so unpredictable mm-hmm. which I think is probably what I enjoy the most you never know what people are going to say Yeah, and we could come in with a hypothesis but it's actually really fun for me I enjoy it when people are like no that's not how I think at all mm-hmm. that's not how we would use that technology like you're wrong and I'd yeah. be like cool like then show tell me, me about it. tell me about it tell <laughs> yeah. me why I'm wrong show me your way yeah like my path into it like wasn't as like it wasn't like a straight path but I think like with the design side I do I enjoy working with designers it's mm-hmm. interesting to see like and try to understand I'm trying to understand their design decisions yeah like what materials they're using why they're using this shape within this interface instead of this other shape why these colors 
Well, we've kind of talked about it, but how'd you decide on New York? I knew somebody in high school. Well, well, I was in high school. They were doing uh, their master's in human factors. And so I shadowed them for a day. And they were working on some really cool project for their master's thesis at the time. And I was just like, this is what I want to do. I want to work with technology and people. So that's how we got into like HCI and UETs. I think my research, my love for research comes from research I did outside of UETs. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to do neuroscience research. I remember we had... the data was already collected by the time I got on to this project, mm. but then we spent two years just ringing that data set and just like bending it and twisting it and just seeing what you can get out of it. And that's something I still enjoy today about U.S. research and, and research in general, right? Like we were talking about this earlier today, yeah. I, I guess, but every single step of the way, it's not that there are rules, it's that there are best practices mm-hmm. and there are ways to do something and then there are ways to do something right. Part of the the fun of U.S. research is just like crafting this little like Rube Goldberg machine for your users where you put them through this process and you extract all of these different data points. You learn so much about them. They, they tell you a story, but in a way that you can work with and like twist and turn and tell that story to your stakeholders. Yeah. Um, it, I find that sort of like puzzle a lot of fun, you know, just yeah. the craft of research. But I think getting to your love for data I also I feel that so much and I think for me and like one of the joys of like working with qualitative data goes back to also goes back to kind of like my neuroscience background where like I think one of the wonders of like working with people and like studying people uh, whether you're a psychologist a sociologist a U.S. researcher um, anything else is that you get to take the human experience and like scrutinize it deeply and just realize all the complexity, all the funky little things, all the like little quirky things that human beings do. Um, you just see like how much richness there is in mm-hmm. just like our regular lives. Yeah. Right. And like the human experience itself just seems suddenly more elevated. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Like you, you get insight into people like kind of doing their regular jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're not doing fancy stuff, but then like by taking the posture of like a student and like, a researcher and just being like, tell me more about that. Like, why are you doing that? Why are, what are the motivations? What are the needs? What are the wants? I just feel like you take something very mundane and something very like simple looking and it turns into like this kaleidoscope and like this like rabbit hole that you never hit the bottom of. No, I, I like wholeheartedly agree with that. I think another thing that makes UX research, at least to me particularly interesting, is just finding out how people have like workarounds or like their hacks. Mm, I love that. To do, yeah. to do the tasks that we're talking about, even if they're mundane. Like how are people doing laundry? Yeah. So many different ways. People so are many different ways. separating their colors from the darks and whites and all this stuff. I personally don't do any of that. No, I just dump that stuff in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But some people separate everything. Some people use fabric softener. Some people use bleach. Some like some people don't have detergent ready, so they'll make their own. I don't know why I felt compelled to use laundry as an example, but it's such a very mundane task. Yeah, right? but but yeah, it's just interesting. It's just like people going about their day, and to them, mm-hmm. like this workaround, they've gotten used to it sometimes, and they're yeah. like, I don't see anything wrong with. It. But then when you like look at it step by step and all their like different tasks and subtasks and suddenly it's like well maybe I could like take out 14 of these tasks and (laughs) make it a little bit easier for them or something so and I think going back to what you were saying about like like UX research as a craft which funny enough you know I'm taking that craftivism class oh that's right there's an endless debate about what is craft I would also argue that UX research is craft an art form it's science it's everything all in one (laughs) 
I mean, the two of us are a little biased, I guess. Yeah. I mean, no hate to the other disciplines. We love you guys. Yeah. But we love us, too. A little bit more. Sure. Sure. Um, I agree. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, with UX Research, it's like, it, there's there's a lot of fun for, like, to me, and probably to you, too, Harshali, like, to be able to design a study. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, whatever... Like, like figuring out, like, you've got this question, like, what information are you trying to find? How do you think you're going to try to find it? Why do you want to use this method versus this method? How are you going to recruit? Who should you recruit? Yeah. How long things should be? Like, there's so many different variables that you can just play around with. Yeah. Because you can change one of those things. It's an entirely different study. Yes. But honestly, like, we talk about qualitative stuff, but if I could redo it, I would love to be a quant person. I think you could be a quant person. I know. There's still, we're young. We can, there's still time. You're 10. <laughs> I'm a little bit older than 10 to all, all of our listeners out there. Yeah. I want to be a stats person. That'd be so cool. Between the two of us, I think you definitely could be a, the stats person. I think you could be a stats person as well. Well, we could all be stats people, but I feel like the fact that you've like you have a background in marketing, which is very quantitative in its own way. Yeah, Microsoft Excel, you're better than Teams. That's <laughs> that's, that's another a, hot take. That's I don't know. Is it a hot take? Is it a lukewarm take? Is it a cold take? If everyone's thinking about it, mm, it's a cold take. I think like everybody has just. I think that, it's frozen. But, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this was this was fun. Yeah. Tune in next time, whenever that is, Yeah, for another episode of the HC Hive After, after hour. Dark. After Hours. Wow, we should figure out a name for this. Yeah. Because if you know, you know. If you don't, yikes. Yikes.